Welcome to School of Movies. Sing Street. Your mother and I really are under a lot of pressure at the moment. We had a look at our accounts and... We're taking you out of school. We're not taking you out of school, we're transferring you. You'll be new then. What's your name? Connor Lawler. Shut up! We have a black shoe policy here, Mr Lawler. They're brown, they're quite sensible. They're not black. Who knows what this new prison will do for you? This is your time. You see, it's beautiful. How come you're not in school? I'm a model. Well, do you want to be in a video for my band? See, if you're in a band, sing me a song. Take on me. We need to form a band. What? Connor's going to band together. Oh, good Jesus. You'd play every instrument known to mankind. Probably. Show them. the girl, isn't it? What's this? All work. Have school in the morning. This is school. Rock and roll is a risk. You risk being ridiculed. Jesus, what are you all wearing? Yeah, we're just working that out. That's great fun. Yeah, it's really fun. Have you kissed her yet? She's got a boyfriend. Pulled off in his car, music blaring. What was he listening to? Genesis. No woman can truly love a man who listens to Phil Collins. So who guy with the car? It's complicated. As long as you're happy. You are truly on a hero's journey. Are you up to that? I think she's just an amazing human being. Think big, Connor. End of term disco at the school hall. I say we ask if we can play it. It's our first gig. It's going to be amazing. I'll try and help. You have to come. Not exactly the Beatles, is it? I actually love this band. <laughs> <laughs> This is a commissioned show for what has become a very special movie for us. It wasn't really beforehand. I know I just liked it a lot. But since we delved deeper and paid attention to what was really going on with the level of intensity required to do a full show on it, I know I personally have developed a deep affection for these characters and the beating heart of this thing. With us are our guests from the Detective Pikachu episode from the Rainbow Connection Muppet podcast. It is Mackenzie Easton. Hello. And Nathan Bertram. Hello again. Now, this is a semi-autobiographical piece from director John Carney, the man behind Once, which, even if you didn't see it, you might remember the best song winner from the 2008 Oscars, Falling Slowly. Falling slowly, eyes that know me, and I can't go back. Moods that take me and erase me, and I'm painted black. Well, you have suffered enough and warred with yourself. It's time that you want. 
Yes, that uh, movie is something that has been on my list for a long time. It's one of my friends' favorites films, and that song is something we sang like a dozen times in choirs in high school. Man. Yeah, no, that that is totally worth watching. Uh, and thanks to that boost, the Oscar nom and the Oscar win, in fact, uh, once, which cost 150 grand, made a tidy 23 million. Carney also directed a feature-length version of his short film Zonad about a man claiming to be an alien in order to rule a small rural Irish village that is until his manager Bonad turns up. Carney went on to direct Begin Again with Keira Knightley and Mark Ruffalo, whose star power netted it $63 million on an $8 million budget, as well as a nomination for Best Song, Lost Stars by Adam Levine in 2015. We saw that as well recently. It's good, but nowhere near as good as this. And then there was Sing Street in 2016. Budget $4 million, made $13 million, and nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Musical or Comedy. However, none of the charming, memorable, heartfelt, brilliant original songs you were about to hear on this podcast were nominated at the Oscars that year, because, of course, 2016 played host, as we all know, to La La Land, Moana, and, checks notes, Trolls. I was... I was genuinely actively angry when Sing Street was not nominated. I distinctly remember this. And I don't actually mind Trolls. It's a fine little kids film. That's fine. But this was very snubbed. Well, yeah. I mean, if nothing else, once getting once didn't get 23 million just because it was a good film it it was it was an uh, uh, in hollywood terms it was a nothing film if you are made for less than a million dollars in in this case a lot less than a million dollars uh, no one's going to see your film but that oscar nom for that song made it like the indie darling and that bumped it up to 23 million that oscar nom for one of these songs maybe there were just too many of them mm, yeah it feels like adam levine's uh, song go now would probably have been the one to to go for rather than the, the little team yeah. t- uh, uh, sounds of uh, of this teenage boy authentically singing the music mm. that sounds like it was made by teenagers. Yeah, although Drive It Like You Stole It's amazing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like all of it's amazing. Well, you know, yeah. Absolutely. All, yeah, absolutely. Oh, right. yeah. All of it's amazing. But, like, if you're up against La La Land with all those dancers and, like, super professional razzmatazz of Golden Age Hollywood, it's tough to compete. Mm. Gonna be honest, I don't think I don't think La La Land deserved to have two best song nominations. Pick one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Accept it. Also, the choice of La La Land over Moana meant that Lin-Manuel Miranda still hasn't egot it, and I'm still upset about that. <laughs> EGOT! <laughs> statistically, <laughs> statistically speaking, most of you guys listening at home haven't seen this film. That being the case, we can't spoil it for you. We can't spoil it for you. We can only give you brighter, sharper eyes for spotting what's going on when you watch it for the first time so that you have a better chance of loving it rather than just liking it. So listen on. It's, it's not a case of, oh, no, now I know what's going to happen. You knowing why it's going to happen is going to be so much more worth it. Set in Dublin, Ireland, in 1985, during a boom time for new musical genres and evolutions of music thereof, Sing Street is about a sensitive 15-year-old-ish boy named Connor who, because his parents have fallen on hard times, is moved from a fairly posh, expensive school to the Christian Brotherhood on Sing Street, S-Y-N-G-E. A real-life place, a savage, chaotic shit pit crawling with bullies and oppressive priests, especially the principal brother, Baxter. And uh, Sharon, you uh, were quick to say last night that... The end credits has a note that 
this being a period piece, that school, which still exists, is much improved and is much more inclusive and uh, in, and progressive progressive yeah. in terms of how they now treat the kids much more kindly much less violence yes yeah yeah and largely because a lot of that's well i was going to say a lot of that's illegal now i've got a sneaky feeling it was pretty illegal then yeah but in 1985 hellhole mm. <clears throat> Uh, Connor meets the enigmatic Rafina, a girl a little older than him, 16, looking to leave Ireland soon, bound for London to be a model. He immediately asks her to be in his next music video for a band that he has decided to start on the spot. His older brother, Brendan, has been teaching him about rock and pop music for years, imbuing in the boy a love of albums and a keen eye for video style. The stage is thus set for the band to assemble and start playing some tunes inspired by and authentically capturing the musical stylings of, in a teenage fashion, among other bands, Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, Hall & Oates and The Cure. But the stage is also set for the disruption of Connor's home, a teenage rebellion against his rotten school, a deepening romantic relationship with Rafina, and the possibility of escape to a better life. This film reminds me of Son of Rambo, sensitive boy in the vicinity of Britain in the early 80s, at the mercy of an insensitive, oppressive Christian sect. Do you remember that in Son of Rambo? Chosen by his family to be the guides for him, and they're terrible guides, and he finds a new outlet for his creative impulses by way of a sweet-natured rebellion. It also reminds me of Rushmore, in which a schoolboy who is a gifted visionary in music or theatre to a degree way above his classmates brings people together with what he does and conducts his life boldly and romantically, getting a series of knocks along the way, but ultimately growing in maturity. So those are my two comparisons of it. Mark Comer also compared it to School of Rock, which I actually think is, is, is fairly accurate, especially if you look at uh, Brendan, his older brother, played by Jack Rayner, who was uh, in Transformers 4. He was the one who had the sleazy Romeo and Juliet clause in his wallet, which meant that he could have sex with this um, girl who was he is mu- he's much younger than him, because that's Michael Bay's chief occupation. Um, a noticeable difference with this character, who immediately is suspicious of somebody older than the age of 16 dating a 16-year-old. I noticed that as well. Yeah. Yes, good mm-hmm. on you, Jack Rayner. Yeah, and yep. uh, Jack Rayner's also in the uh, recent Midsummer, which everybody loved, apart from me. I could not stand that film, and you can check out my quick review on that if you're on our Patreon. Uh, but here... It's like, the, you know, all of those memories of him in these rotten movies playing rotten characters, it was just melted away because he is magic in this. So I suppose he'd be Dewey in the uh, School of Rock role and he's sort of guiding these kids towards musical evolution. But he takes a less hands-on role and just gives this kid advice and lets effectively Zach Mooningham make the School of Rock himself. Uh, but several other people have made comparisons with the 1990 Alan Parker film The Commitments. Uh, so has anyone seen this? I've seen the stage version (laughs) Uh, when I was in London. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I actually had never seen it before until just a week ago. And I was like, I've got to see this film so that we can at least feel this particular thing. Because other people are going to be saying, oh, you've got to watch The Commitments if you like Sing Street. I'm going to ask Sharon here then because she she is an old hand at watching The Commitments. She watched it when she was younger and so she took it in. Where do the similarities start and stop for you? Uh, They're Irish and they sing. (laughs) <laughs> they, they bring a band together. Yeah, that's about it. That's that's about it, really. I am not a fan of the commitments personally. 
mainly because I was sort of forced to watch it due to doing some studies on Roddy Doyle when I was mm. at uni, uh, studying literature. Lyra, who had just seen Sing Street, because we, we marathoned them, uh, said, hang on, we went from a lovely film to a film about just horrible, awful pig men. And I was like... <laughs> Yep, uh, it's the commitment, so, yeah, uh, I'm so sorry. And uh, like, had my hand hovering over the fast-forward button in case anything untoward happened. I haven't seen it for a long time, to be fair, because I didn't mm. watch it with you the other day, but I, I do not remember it appealing to me much at all. The only thing I kind of liked about it was that the girl backing singers uh, kind of grew as characters and ended up having really great voices and probably would have been much better focus for that film. Mm. And at the end of the film, the smart-ass twit... Jimmy, who brought the band together, looks at himself in the mirror and says, So looking back, Jimmy, what do you feel you've learned most from your experience with the commitments? Well, that's a tricky question, Terry, but as I always say, we skipped the light fandango, turned cartwheels across the floor. I was feeling kind of seasick, but the crowd called out for more. That's very profound, Jimmy. What does it mean? I'm fucked if I know, Terry. All you gotta do is And I thought, yeah, that's you. Bye-bye. Never be compared to Sing Street again. Bye. The movie is about a dozen fictional people in Ireland who are gathered together by Jimmy to fight, fuck, and sing cover versions of black American soul music. The irony being that there isn't a soul among their white asses. There's a an authenticity in the creative impulse in Sing Street, which... The commitments lacks. They lack commitment. commitment. Ironically. <sighs> Although one thing that I did that did occur to me, the whole thing about Connor coming from a private school, and this is borne out by your comparison to Rushmore as well, it does sort of seed the point that private education can give people a sense of not entitlement exactly, although entitlement, if they come from money, yes, but also a sense of, well, why shouldn't I achieve? Why shouldn't I succeed? Connor has a degree of confidence to him that I really can't imagine anybody Mm. um, who had grown up in that school Mm. having. He hasn't been beaten down by life, so life starts to beat him down as hard as it possibly can as soon as he goes in there. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So, actually, I'll get to this bit now. I think the major difference for me uh, was that the commitments were, uh, as I say, a cover band assembled to sing songs people already know. So this is a question for you guys. What is the philosophy on rock and roll in Sing Street, especially as espoused by Big Brother Brendan? There's a continuing thread that rock and roll and I suppose just music in general is about, well, self-expression is definitely a part of it and breaking out of the bounds that life is putting you in. Brandon is clearly trying to let Connor get further than he ever did by exploring this creative interest that he has and by not giving up on his genuine talent for making music. It's a lot more about actually expressing yourself and making something new and trying things than it is just about making something that's good or impressing people. And I think that goes beyond the music as well, the bringing in of the music video element 
And I love what Brendan says about it's the perfect combination of music and visuals. It's to the point, it's short, but it's punchy. And it will last forever as opposed to just a live performance, which is kind of rooted that then yeah. it's kind of, the live performance is effectively theatre on film. Yes, indeed. Mm. If you can encapsulate, I mean, a song, a, a, a pop song, a love song, a, a rock song, it bottles an emotion in a, a very intense format. And to put visuals with that gives you another layer to the ability to communicate that emotion. And that's what Connor suddenly finds himself in a position to do. And it gives him an outlet that he's not had before, whether because he's not needed it or because it, it's just not been available to him. But the the philosophy that Brendan is kind of giving him to stand this outlet on is about being as authentic as you can through that outlet. And there's also an element there that ties into the aesthetics and what they choose to wear and how they choose to present themselves. And there's this very good, (laughs) what seems to me as a person who never experienced it, genuine 80s, like teen rebellious element to how they decide to start dressing themselves and acting in public and it ties back into that idea of identifying and like figuring out who you are and uh, expressing your emotions and what you want to be and what you want to make on every level of yourself whether that's the music or the videos or dyeing your hair even though your mean principal would not like you to do that (laughs) The soundtrack for this movie, the first track is actually not one of the songs, but just that that sound bite in the from the dialogue where Brendan says that rock and roll is a risk. Yeah. And that is an element that runs throughout this movie is that to be a performer in that way is to put yourself in a position where you are going to be criticized, you are going to be made fun of and insulted and there will be pushback from people to what you're doing to expressing yourself so openly and uh what brendan does throughout a lot of the movie is really encourage that and nurture that sense of doing something that is from yourself rather than um just copying what other people are doing which the first thing he does when connor brings the recording of them doing I think it's the Duran Duran song. Is he tells them that the riddle of the you're model. not gonna <laughs> no. The first song they do is uh, Rio. Yes. Oh yeah. They do a recording of Rio, and he brings it back to Brendan to play for him. Yeah, that's right. That's when he says, and "Don't he, be a cover band." Yeah, he destroys the tape and basically tells him that you're not going to you're not going to get anything out of stealing someone else's music in order to to actually impress someone. It has to come from you. And that's an element to rock and roll, to the philosophy of this movie that really comes through in the relationship between Brendan and Connor and in how uh, Connor's relationship with the music evolves over the course of the film. I think that philosophy could be refined as is not so much a uh, damnation of uh, uh, just cover bands in general or covers of songs. Some of them, like Hurt by Johnny Cash, can be masterpieces. I think it's more... Uh, a way of expressing that if you're an artist and you actually had a chance of expressing yourself but you don't take that risk 
and you are content to just cruise by, effectively tracing the work of other artists. Uh, you, there is a need for that. There is a want for people to be able to listen to that. There is a niche in society for uh, you know, quite a large, sizable niche to create this stuff and keep people happy at weddings. Mm. But you miss that chance to be able to express yourself if you go that direction. If you don't take the risk, if you don't stand up to the possibility of being ridiculed, it is concern rather than condemnation. Well, mm -hmm. it's, it's taking the... I suppose the commercial route, that if you become a wedding band, then you aren't likely to set anything on fire, but you will potentially have access to a steady stream of income that mm. at least means you will be able to live your life doing roughly what you love. Yeah, being a jobbing musician. Yeah. It's a continuation of just keeping your head down. Well, here's a thing you could do. And it wouldn't cause too much fuss, but is that really worth the effort in the first place? Is it better to just keep your head down and not anger people and just make people vaguely happy with how you're acting, or is it better to actually express yourself? That was bad, bad music, and there is nothing as bad in this world as bad music. You know, you can record overtakes. No. That was a novelty act. You want to have actual sexual intercourse, right? Yeah. Well, what? The girl. It's all about the girl, isn't it? Yeah, the girl, yeah. And you're going to use somebody else's art to get her? Are you kidding? We're just starting. We need to learn how to play. Do the Sex Pistols know how to play? You don't need to know how to play. Who are you, Steely Dan? You need to learn how not to play, Connor. That's the trick. That's rock and roll. And that takes practice. And you're not a covers band, by the way. Really? No. Every school has a covers band. Every pub has a covers band. Every wedding has a covers band. And every covers band has a middle-aged member who'll never know whether they could have made it in the music industry or not because they never had the balls to write a song for someone else. Rock and roll is a risk. You risk being ridiculed. But I don't know how to write a song. Close that door and sit down. Really? It's going to be a long night. Of school in the morning. This is school. So uh, why do the music videos in Sing Street uh, both the band within the film Sing Street and the film Sing Street itself look and sound and feel so authentic. Let's get down to like what Connor and company are able to produce because they start doing stuff in back alleys and on the dockside uh, with this knackered old, uh, as I say knackered, it was probably new at the time, uh, videotape camera. Um, and it sh what comes out, them being children, should be rubbish but it's kind of magic, so why? Well, to a degree, it is rubbish, and in part, that's the, <laughs> that's the point. You know, the, that was the point of the, the 80s style. Everyone's clothes are a little bit too big because they're, they're hand-me-downs or they're remnants or stuff that you picked up in thrift stores. The makeup was a little bit too overdone because everyone was figuring it out for themselves rather than, you know, following accepted norms of don't-match green eye shadow with blue eyes and stuff like that. They still haven't worked out what instruments not to play. Well, <laughs> it, in a way, that was the point. It wasn't about playing around until you hit on the right notes. It was about enjoying what you could get out of the mess of the wrong notes. Mm. And the the set and the costumes and everything, nothing is polished in this. And that's why it looks real. 
this was the movie that got me to finally understand what teenagers in the 80s were doing with their aesthetic, what this rebellion was accomplishing, because you're comparing it to what the social like standard was, what is the ideal to face in the 80s, and that's, in the case of Ireland, like the Christian Brotherhood, and in the case of society at large, it's like uptight businessmen in fancy suits looking entirely clean and perfect and regimented like a production line. And the way that 80s teens and the kids in this movie rebel against that and express themselves is by looking intentionally like a mess. <laughs> is is by being as big and as crazy and over the top as possible in comparison to what they're supposed to do. It's by painting your shoes black when they're supposed to be black with paint from the art shop instead of actually getting black shoes. And that comes off in the music and in the music videos. There's this scene at the beginning when they're first watching a music video on MTV and it's Duran Duran's Rio and the dad just doesn't get music videos on any level and you're watching it and they're not great (laughs) 80s music videos are weird and they don't really follow any aesthetic that is popular now but there's something very genuine about how weird they are and the switches between imagery that don't necessarily mean anything but mean something in the randomness and i think the kids in this movie making their own stuff really hits on that same aesthetic of i don't know throw it out the window (laughs) we're still figuring this medium out I think you're on the money there. Um, if you actually go back and look at uh, the, the, the the standard of music videos in the, especially early 80s, when they were just figuring things out, when MTV was new, uh, when they were like, right, we've got a camera, we've got a bunch of three-wheeled bikes and the Cotswolds. How do we make Big Country look good for this song? And then there's a whole load of VT and stuff which they just shot on the side, which is a bit weird. Like that bit when they, they zoom in at the end of the riddle of the model on that kid who bought the fangs, just because it's like, well, well, well we had this and we, we're putting it here. You know, they, they muddle through in the edit. If, if you look at things like, um, there's a particular music video by Journey for separate ways and then in parentheses, Worlds Apart, which immediately springs to mind when I think of bad 80s videos. It was filmed very cheaply on the docks with them getting super emotional standing atop pallets beside a warehouse in broad daylight, occasionally standing beside a forklift truck. It's a real health and safety hazard. There's a girl wandering around. It feels like that was oddly influential on the riddle of the model. And I swear to God, the line between these guys and Spinal Tap is so thin it is now invisible. The music video is one of the most atrocious I've ever seen. It's embarrassingly silly. And yet it's so earnest and the song kind of rocks. And that's the professionals. So the fact that these kids were able to put together anything and have it look kind of like the stuff that you'd have watched in those days is not just, it's not not miraculous. It's kind of, 
just that they have a good eye for what mm. they're it, seeing. It reminded me of there's a a film called Series Seven: The Contenders where they flash back to the eighties teenage years. Mm. Of the uh, Lovell Terrace Apart uh, and music they video. The, they do their own Lovell Terrace, which looks Apart like video. every goth's first like uh, media project. Absolutely, but that also looks very authentic to the eighties, and yeah. that's kind of what this reminded me of. <laughs> yeah, but the the whole thing about the the how that rebels against the environment that they're in. Speaking as somebody who was relatively compassmentous in the 80s, I was born in 78, so by the end of the 80s I was in my very early teens. But I was... I, I grew up in areas that were either rural or lightly industrialised, northern-ish towns, and the what they've got going on here is very, very familiar to me. Mm. Not so much with the, the Catholic backbone, because the areas I grew up in were much more Church of England, but it, there was still that kind of overtone of there is an accepted way that we do things around here and uh, everybody needs to toe the line. And it's it's unspoken, but that makes it more insidious because you can't directly challenge something which is unspoken. And at age nine or ten, I had a particular penchant for dressing up in lots of over-the-top pink and putting my long hair in a side ponytail and wearing makeup that didn't match and leg warmers that were entirely inappropriate for the context. And I got the piss ripped out of me. It was My, my fashion sense was considered to be non-existent. But that was my attempt to rebel and be me in what I was wearing and it I don't know quite what happened to that aesthetic I don't wear pink anymore but I think we've already established my look in the 80s mm. button down shirt tucked into very short shorts sort of a uh, I suppose it'd be a fanny pack for Americans bum bag for British people hot pink and a pudding bowl haircut and arms crossed and cocking my head on one side going and I am 10 just in case anybody needs the full picture Mike from Stranger Things series 3 there we go yeah pretty much <laughs> just that that was my self-expression see, see I was 5 when this film is set so uh, I'm very like, like seeing the interiors of houses. I'm like, yes, I remember when things were like that. Mm. Uh, but uh, I did. I didn't really get to feel like a teenager looking for self-expression until the mid '90s, or the early to mid '90s at least. It wasn't that same kind of thing. I wore what my parents gave me, but I completely get the striking out against asshole teachers who not only don't get you, but don't want to get you. Mm. So this is the first song sung by Sing Street themselves, the riddle of the model, performed in an alleyway by some awkwardly dressed kids, remarkably authentically.
That last bit there is super 80s. A fascination only with the style of Japan, conveyed in a slightly racist way. So this movie seems to be fairly critical of Ireland at the time. I mean, the the way that Ireland is portrayed in this movie reminds me a lot, as someone who grew up in the prairies around a lot of small communities, it reminds me a lot of uh, the small towns that I was familiar with growing up, where it's um, a lot of, like very uh, closely knit communities that are in a way very backwards and very internally focused. And a lot of the youth growing up in those communities have this singular focus on getting out yeah, on, on like getting away from these, uh, these, these deeply internally focused groups that are, they reject uh, anything that is outside the, society that they have already built mm-hmm. as we say sitting in toronto uh, <laughs> as coming from saskatchewan uh and there's also this sense and of the like poverty and the difficulty of what's going on in the country at the time that this is a bad situation not just because people are being backwards and people are not accepting of others but because people are struggling Mm. that it's really hard to get by right now for reasons that i obviously don't know to the full extent because i don't know my irish history that well but that also feels familiar to us because it's not like living in a farm town it ever feels stable it's very similar to living in a coastal town in that way there's isolation and it never feels like even if you're surrounded by people you can actually know anybody (laughs) There's a thing you don't even necessarily need to know your Irish history. There's things you can pick up on when you watch the film, specifically about what's happened to the parents. The father, um, Aidan Gillen in this, uh, drinks and smokes to excess. Eamon's father is... Is he absent? Absent. Absent, yeah. His mother's on his own and uh, clearly unsatisfied. Rafina's father is dead and, from the sounds of it, wasn't a very nice man uh, to begin with. And mother is deeply depressed, uh, manic depressive in she's fact. So manic she's... depressive, in and out of hospital Rafina's been raised in or is cu- certainly currently living in a, homes, yeah. uh, a care home across the way from the yeah. school Connor's father's also uh, at the moment uh, having extreme difficulty with his business he's actually in architecture and uh, he has to send him to a non-fee paying school just so they can make ends meet and this is also putting a strain on their marriage uh, uh, Connor's mother is having an affair it, the, the adults have fucked everything up and they're trapped and they're stuck. There's also the prevalence of authority, especially religious authority, and them taking it upon themselves to educate, or, or in this case, to actually, in, in Connor's case, to actually grab and shove through an education to shape, mold him by force into what they want him to be like. What I got 
the abiding impression was that the adults had screwed everything up and yet they still persist in trying to force the kids back through the same pattern. Mm. Well, there is a strong emphasis on the value that they have on education. They they did, from the sounds of things, sacrifice a lot to put Brendan into college, mm. which he then chose to drop out of or reached a point where he felt he had to drop out of. They've sacrificed to put Connor into private school as long as they can Mm. and his sister is educated and looking to become an architect like her dad his sister notably by the way barely says or does anything in the film and seems to be racked with anxiety Mm, indeed so she's she's already growing into one of these parents the path she's taking is to emulate what they've set for her Mm. but that what you were saying about the that small town sense of you're only real option here is to get out Mackenzie that really hit home for me because there's a there's a there's a period of history with Ireland of it being the place that people leave and there are numerous countries usually ones that are next to uh, bigger and more economically sound countries where that's what happens. The young people grow up and they leave. New Zealand had the same problem for a very, very long time. They couldn't hang on to their youth because they would go to Australia to work or they would come to the UK to work. And in Ireland, they had the same thing. And You're it, describing what's happened in a lot of rural places in absolutely, America. Absolutely, yeah. And why they deeply resent the city that their children moved to. Precisely. And that's, it, it perpetuates the problem, but on the flip side what the hell else are you supposed to do you can't stay there if it doesn't give you the options that you as a a young person with vision and uh and hope desperately need and one of the things that i think they they paint very well from the word go for this film is the lack of options the lack of choices the uh the the fact that people are presented with situations where they are stuck not through any means of of their own it doesn't feel like there's any blame being placed although you do have things like Aidan Gillen as you say drinking and smoking to excess and Eamon's father I think does he say something about him being in some kind of recovery home or for alcoholics or something like that But there's, there's never any sense of that they have brought this on themselves. It's very much a circumstantial thing, that this is sometimes what people get stuck with. And when they're in ridiculous high pressure because they feel like they're on a sinking ship. Absolutely. And the, the, the ways that you can escape are few and far between, and the escape ropes are fucking thin. And if you can grab one and you have the courage and the vision to do so that is something to be celebrated but notably when they do escape at the end it has to be in secret because that is not something yeah. the parents would abide by Absolutely. for a start the way they leave is very fucking dangerous well, incredibly yes <laughs> honestly i my parent brain kicked in when they started talking about it and they were like we're going to take the boat and we're going to london and i'm like dude you're going to land in hollyhead it is a long way from there to london and you have no money what are you going to do walk yeah uh, Nathan actually had a really good response to the the way that they go to London at the end of this movie when we were watching it the other night. Oh yeah, no, we were um, the the scene at the end where they take off in the boat. Um, Mackenzie made that same comment about how dangerous it would be trying to cross the channel to to England, and 
Editor's note, it's actually the Irish Sea, the English Channel, even though this is technically a channel, the English Channel is the one that stands in between England and France. My reaction was that actually crossing the ocean in a fishing boat is not a bad metaphor for what these characters are attempting to do for their own lives to to make this journey to something better. Actually, we can we can talk about what leads up to that. Uh, what do you like about the way that Connor and Rafina's relationship develops? Because to begin with, he just meets her standing on a step, doing not much of anything, looking enigmatic and like a model, and uh, strikes up a conversation with her. And by the end, they're in a lot more intimate with each other and taking this insane risk together. So what were the highlights for you? I appreciate how confident Connor is in all of these interactions. I feel like in most teen movies where there's a boy who is going after a girl who's older and prettier, they are insecure and kind of cruel a lot of the time in their actions. And Connor is very rarely cruel. By the end of the movie, he abandons her for a little while, but not in a way to me that feels unnecessary it feels like she really needed to be shown that her actions hurt people Mm. and he needed to stand up for himself in that moment and their connection feels really genuine that she really does appreciate his art and he really does believe in her ability as a model and she's clearly very talented at like visual framing and knowing what is aesthetically pleasant for the time and the relationship really builds to a very satisfying point where you believe that they have a chance at accomplishing things together Uh, this relationship for Rafina's uh, point of view almost begins uh, in this transactional sense where Mm. she sees an opportunity in being in this music video to kind of build uh, more of her portfolio to kind of get more experience working in, you know, the medium of video rather than as as a photo model. Uh, And the relationship builds in a way that feels very natural, very kind of messy and kind of difficult. And you get the whole tension between Connor and her current boyfriend who is older and seems to have more uh, money and more connections and they grow to have this affection for each other through the experience of making this art rather than just the the way that a lot of romantic movies will do this back and forth between uh, romantic characters Uh, this feels a lot more uh, intentional and a lot more Natural. And incredibly, horribly teenage awkward at moments. Yes. Oh, oh, man, did I have flashbacks to my horrible teenage romances. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good and bad. <laughs> Speaking as somebody who had her first boyfriend when she was 17 and he was a year or two younger. Yeah, there was a lot here that was kind of, ooh. Um, but the, the, I think what I like about it is that I know what you mean about it seems transactional to begin with, Nathan, but I don't think that lasts very long. I think that dissipates as soon as she clocks the school uniform and when he says who the producer is and it's this red-headed kid across the way. Dirk Calloway. Yeah, I I think it's 
it's more that she admires his moxie. I mean, she's been hanging out on the steps of this home for obviously a little while, and I think the kid whose name escapes She says, me. I'm very busy at one point. It's like, mm. sure you are. You're not busy. <laughs> but yeah, the, the kid comments that she all, she's always there, but obviously no one else has had the, uh, the balls to approach her. So mm. the, the fact that he comes... Because of the riddle of the model? Well, indeed. I think she, she quite likes that. She likes the boldness. She's got these ambitions about modelling, but honestly, it's more just getting out. With what she's got. Yeah, Yeah. just an idea, a theory of how she could feasibly get away. It actually did make me think a little bit of um, Drop Dead Gorgeous. Mm -hmm. You know, when they they interview... Well, specifically when they're interviewing, I think it's Brittany Murphy, Mm. and she says... That guys get out of Montrose all the time. They football scholarships football or prison. Scholarships or go to prison. But for, <laughs> for girls, the, the Brittany Murphy's um, delivery was so great. It was fantastic. So, yeah. but for girls, they but get for, beauty for girls, queens. The beauty or that's contests it. are pretty much all they have as yeah. an opportunity to to leave. And this is something that Rafina obviously thinks might be her ticket out of there. <laughs> but in the meantime, somebody who actually sparks her interest is of more value than just hanging out on the steps with a cigarette again. She also seems to genuinely see that Connor has talent and wants to help improve that for whatever reason. Mm. Yeah, she lends her skills as a uh, first as a makeup artist. She's quite take charge, but she doesn't, they don't end up clashing over uh, ideas. They actually work together really smoothly. Mm. And her age is something that kind of echoes a little bit she's only a year older than connor and they say she's 16 which makes him 15 Mm. and the the way that she behaves she doesn't actually seem massively older than that but there's a few moments that kind of remind you how young she is and what she doesn't know when she uh, wipes her makeup off and looks at herself in the mirror that's a very uh that's a uh, reduction in age and experience but i think that that hanging out with him and and the enthusiasm he has that she's starting to lose like if she carried on the trajectory she was going mm. that would have got beaten out of her very quickly i think even you know to a degree it has been already and although they don't go into it in a great deal of depth i think it's alluded to at one point that her dad abused her yeah. and there's a high possibility that she has inherited some of her mother's uh, depression, possibly mania as well, whether genetically or simply through growing up in that life and observing those ways of handling it. She's like a manic pixie dream girl, but not in the sense that it's never implied that that these extreme behaviours that she engages in are good for either her or Connor. Yeah, and actually, and it's not her bringing this out of him no. if anything he's kind of doing that for her he's giving yeah. her an outlet for her uh, um abilities as a performer and and actually to be able to take part in a creative endeavor like the the, the videos that they're putting together mm. feels a little bit girl next door as well yeah a little bit in a much more subdued way yeah i get i get that actually yeah the um the the, the sense that he's inexperienced and she's seen more of the world than him mm. One of the things that really struck me, the um, the actress who plays her, I think I saw her first in um, Murder on the Orient Express, Lucy Boynton. 
She's such an expressive actress, and they make full use of her in several scenes where she is given a tape to listen to uh, uh, by Connor. Of, uh, I mean, we all used to make mixtapes for the people that we uh, cared about, but he actually wrote her and, and performed songs for her. And there's one or two moments when he's clearly made a song and it's about her, or even if it, he purports that it's not about her, it really gets to her. The depth of his feeling, his ability to allow himself to be that vulnerable to her really affects uh, Rafina. She, uh, you know, just when she's alone listening to the music and crying. Many of us are used to this with powerful enough vocalists or music that just gets to you. But in Rafina's case, she's effectively his muse. So many of his songs are about her. And they're so heartfelt, it can't fail to have a profound effect. Then I'm back in the dream Think I'm back on the ceiling Going up She lights me up She breaks me up She lifts me As someone who grew up, this is really personal to me, this whole movie and this relationship, it reminds me of not only myself, but my parents, who who would have been falling in love in the late 80s and 90s, uh, early 90s, and my mother was a model in the 80s, and my dad is a musician, and I mean, my mother went through some stuff with her family, and their relationship is something that I really look up to, but also I was not in the best mental state when I was a teenager and not when I met my fiance who's sitting across the room from me. And I can really relate to that. Someone who has built up walls because they feel like they need to being experiencing somebody's openness and vulnerability and how touching that can be and how it, much that can help you grow as a person and keep you going and connect you back to that hopefulness and energy that you maybe didn't know you still had in you. And when you compare uh, the uh, guy who he, Connor is effectively put up against a guy named Evan. We only see him once in a bit and he's a, uh, uh, a, a an older man who drives a BMW and when you look at the uh, whole film in context he's found this gorgeous 16 year old girl that he wants to go and fuck in a B&B and he's just schmoozing her uh, so that she'll come with him and promising that he'll take her to London uh, but to her in her head it's real and he's going to take her to London and she's going to get out of this and she's comparing Connor to him, and he's a grown-up, and Connor feels threatened by him a little bit. But weirdly, Evan seems to be more threatened by Connor in the way that he uh, overreacts a, a little bit too much when he uh, first meets this kid. Sort of like passive-aggressively makes fun of him, stalls his car. I was just going to say, passive-aggressively stalls his car. Very impressive. Yeah, trying to drive away and look cool, and, yeah. and so grown-up, and, and uh, that... that Connor doesn't can't possibly stand a chance against this guy. I don't think it's weird that he's reacting that way because the only kinds of men who 
do this, who try to date women that much younger than them in like in the way that he's clearly doing it just to manipulate someone who is less mature and less who's seen less of the world. They're all genuinely insecure, crappy people who will feel threatened by literally anybody else who even kind of approaches the person they're trying to isolate and use. So, I say as a person who was in that situation as a 16 year old girl. So in retrospect, uh, Connor, uh, needn't have been quite so threatened, but, uh, probably should have been a bit more worried about, uh, Rufina. Now, Rufina eventually has to make a choice and just goes at one point. She, uh, she disappears and he's told later, oh, she went off to London with this guy. And then she comes back and pretends to be her own sister when he uh, sees her uh, in an attempt to evade him. Uh, possibly because she just doesn't want to talk to him about the decision she made, the wrong decision she made. But it feels like it's really important to her in this movie that she had to make that wrong decision first. Uh, because when she finally is able to actually get round to the right decision, she's able to enter into it wholeheartedly and also sometimes when you have something idealized in your head whether it's a relationship or a a career idea or a place that you want to go and live sometimes you have to go and do it and find out how shit it is to be able to let go of it there's no way of talking a teenager out of a situation like that no matter how bad it is I I say as a teenager who had so many wonderful people trying to tell me I was doing stupid things (laughs) and the whole film is actually uh, filled with our our heroes um, choosing to not do as they're told or uh, being forced into something being forced into this school Uh, when he first meets this school bully Barry Barry immediately says hey do you want a cigarette and then sticks a catapult straight in his face and tells him to dance uh, in a homoerotic fashion and he refuses and Barry just walks out and at the same time Barry's clearly a little bit confused about this aspect of himself so there's a little bit of pity in there and then but Barry keeps coming back and tormenting him at school humiliating him in front of everyone until Connor crucifies Barry in front of the uh, uh, the rest of the school by saying that effectively they, they exist in different worlds. You know, you really think there is some built-up conflict between you and me? <laughs> That's gross point blank, folks. Watch it. Um, mm. Gratifyingly, much like Rushmore, rather than just going, ha, see, the bully's rubbish, he recruits the bully and he uh, actually, you know, gives him something to do, gives him a job as a roadie and gives him an outlet. So this kid, Barry, actually ends up really happy because his father is one of the worst people in the world. Again, one of the terrible uh, parental figures in this. Like, uh, Barry's father is the worst because he calls his son a useless shite all the time uh, and is you know, just drinking himself into a stupor every day and encouraging Barry to do the same. And anything even vaguely to do with Connor is immediately pointed out and, uh, and given the label fairy wearing makeup. But Barry has to make that choice as well. And uh, the, you know, the choice to wear makeup, the choice to the being forced to remove it physically. And the, the, the priest that I mentioned before is not actually in it as much as, as you would imagine. Um, Father, what's his name? Bernard? Brother Baxter. Brother Baxter. Uh, if you ever watched Father Ted, he was um, Father Dick Burns' Dougal, uh, like the, his sidekick. Uh, he's 
he's weirdly softly spoken and weirdly like passive aggressive so that when he then explodes at Connor for wearing makeup and then refusing to take it off, grabbing him in the corridor and shoving his face into a sink uh, to, to physically rub it off himself. It's like a rape scene. It is like, uh, uh, how dare you defy me? I'm going to exert my power over you. It's an upsetting moment. But ultimately, Connor then has to choose to defy that. Connor has to then choose to step up to that. And his punk song, uh, later Brown Shoes, is in direct opposition to this oppression. Mm. And that, again, is something that it, it's, it's subtle, but there's a moment when Brother Baxter is, is almost being kind of soft and coercing with him and tells him to come into his own bathroom to take the makeup off. Mm. And I think that could have gone a very different way. But the the... From what little I know of the Christian Brothers schools, and they were a net, were possibly still are a network of schools throughout Ireland, with, from the sounds of things, a horrible, horrible reputation and way of behaving towards the boys in their care, and just fostered this environment of repression and toxic homophobia and everything that that you could possibly point to as being these are the bad values that enforced catholicism instills in boys particularly mm. it's toxic as shit they're actually standing there turning a blind eye to ch- to to these boys beating the fuck out of each other yeah and implicitly encouraging it because it's a way of keeping them in line yeah when adults in a school system don't feel like they can control the children they let the children control each other Mm. that is a thing i learned from a high school that got an influx of like extra 200 students without any change in staffing or building (laughs) yeah that was rough there was a lot of stuff going on and a lot of discs being flipped and a lot of food being thrown and they just gave up after a while and I don't know how malicious it is, but eventually you just think, well, it's not worth me sticking my neck out about it. And that is the wrong attitude to take if you are in charge of young people. Yeah. Yeah. But again, this, this all sort of culminates in the prom. And uh, there's, there's a, a sequence uh, where they sing a song, Drive It Like You Stole It. And it, it, it's a big centerpiece of the film, which uh, you guys mentioned that at the beginning would have been a good um, uh, Oscar uh, potential. And, and yeah, actually, of the uh, ones sung by the kids, this is probably the most professional-seeming and the most catchy uh, in terms of uh, feeling like something people could actually stick on at a party and you would definitely get people enjoying it. The most polished. Yeah, most polished. That's a good way of putting it. Uh, but it's there's a, uh, an extra layer to this because what actually happens is it turns into a dream sequence. He's at the he's made it like Back to the Future in his head. The fish under the sea dance. No, no, it was the enchantment under the sea dance. Fourth wall break inside a fourth wall break. That's like sixteen walls. All of like, his parents come in and start dancing, and all of like he's got a bunch of kids in doo wop gear, sort of doing awkward hand clicks to begin with, and then they turn into a whole auditorium full of uh, uh, dancing kids. 
And then his brother comes in with short hair as opposed to the big, long, straggly mop he normally has. Very specifically dressed like James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause, which weirdly means he's also dressed like Philip J. Fry in Futurama. And he looks like uh, Seth Rogen and Chris Pratt got brundle-flied. Uh, gets into a knife uh, flick knife fight reminiscent of the one in uh, the Beat It music video, which came out around about this time. Specifically with Evan. Specifically with Evan, who is uh, presented as being an aggressor to uh, Rafina, who at the time was supposed to be there, but she's not. Mm. So effectively what we're getting is Connor's imagined version of this music video. So why is it so significant? Well, one of the things about this sequence that really leapt out to me this time, this last time I was watching it was... There's a line very early in the film, and they repeat this concept a few times when they're forming the band, that they are futurists. They are about the future and not about the past. No nostalgia. And when the movie gets to the point where Connor is at his saddest, slowest moment, when Rafina doesn't show up and everything's going to crap and they're trying to do this performance and it's clearly not working the way they want it to, and he delves into fantasy... That fantasy is the most nostalgia-themed thing in the whole movie. It is all 1950s aesthetics and Back to the Future references, and it's a very different aesthetic than the rest of the movie, which is very grounded and very 1980s. And it's very telling, I think, that at this point in the movie, Connor needs to be in this place where his parents love each other and they're doing a fun dance and his brother is coming in on a motorcycle and he's so desperate for something to be a Hollywood perfect story at this point and that's not what it's going to be and he needs to make his own story. I think it is significant as well that his his point of reference for this is not the 1950s. It's not something that he himself remembers. No. It's a movie he's seen relatively recently. Because he was watching Stranger Things season three. Well, indeed. <laughs> and specifically, it's a movie that involves futuristic thinking. And it's, again, that rebelling by taking things that are a mishmash of what you have available to you mm. and putting it together to make something that you personally can move forward with but nobody else will get because they'll look at it and see bits of, well, that's that you've stolen that from the teddy boys. What's a teddy boy? You know what I mean? It's it, the, the, When kids take things that to them are new and move forward with them, it's not necessarily a, a, a desperation to replicate. It's about finding something that is is their thing to find. And especially now, although this is the 80s, and so technically speaking, Connor is Gen X, very, very firmly Gen X, there's an element of Brendan being Gen X, the older brother, who ultimately has to get out of the way so that the younger, more hopeful version of himself can go forward and actually achieve something that he was never able to do. Uh, one of the really interesting things about this scene as it compares to the musical performance later at the actual dance is that this is, as we said before, it's nostalgia in that sense that it is drawing from all of these influences from the 1950s and from Back to the Future, Uh Whereas the song that they sing later in the same auditorium for an actual live performance is the most modern and the most ahead of its time. Uh, stylistically, it's 
almost uh, like 90s punk song. Hmm. And it contrasts pretty directly with this fantasy that he's building because we get in that fantasy, we get things like Brother Baxter does this very elaborate backflip sequence into the auditorium and like gives, and gives a blessing a to the band. Yeah, a blessing with a thumbs up. Like, this and is what would happen on, if you were not yeah. an asshole <laughs> and could do and gymnastics. Then later we get him, we get him uh, the Brother Baxter, trying desperately to reach the stage to put a stop to this performance because they are doing this in direct opposition to him. Hmm. And we get uh, Brendan promising to come to the show, but he doesn't show up. And we get Rafina actually coming this time, even though she didn't think she would be able to make it there's she's not expected but she shows up and it's this um you almost get the sense that this is reality in opposition to the fantasy that he has built for himself in this earlier scene it's a more genuine reality and it's a better reality in a lot of ways it's also worth noting that in the drive it like you stole it sequence you see how non-violent connor's uh, revenges, quote unquote, are <laughs> the the fact that he puts Brendan in a, a very brief knife fight with Evan, in which nobody is hurt, and the conclusion is they shake hands and and go off as as mates, just like in and real life. That Brother Baxter's response to their music is to approve of him mm. there's no he needs to drop a speaker on his head or anything like that. You know what I mean? There's there's he doesn't. Um, he doesn't feel the need to visit any kind of aggression on the people who have visited aggression on him. And I think that's reflected again when his solution for dealing with Barry is to embrace him and and try and bring him in and and channel him rather than lashing out at him. There's, There's a very peaceful approach to how he tries to deal with things. And it is, that really feels like it's, in the spirit of that new romantic essence, which mm. is, is almost hippie but not. Hmm. I appreciate, though, that while his, he, his first impulse is always to try to reach out and to explain things and to try to turn people to his side in the nicest way possible, he is able to see when that is not a possibility and rebel when that is necessary mm. with the brown shoes song and the final performance with the masks because there was no changing brother baxter he could never have been nice enough like he was with barry to do anything Mm. and there's a good moral in there of always try to reach out initially be willing to stand up for yourself when that is no longer an option absolutely but his his final retort is still satire and not violence yes (laughs) Which is almost more frightening to uh, a lot of um, to somebody authority to figures because they're terrified they'll be laughed and ridicule at. ridicule are far more significant than pain or aggression, absolutely.
I will say this, and this is me in the edit. I've been listening to the Sing Street soundtrack repeatedly since watching the film. And weirdly, the listening cannot compare to the watching of the film. This is one of those instances where music and visuals, much like what Brendan said at the beginning of the film, combine into something more powerful than the sum of its parts. Especially the final song, Go Now, that absolutely destroyed me in the past couple of times I've watched it. But I can listen to the song and it doesn't get to me in the same way. So what we're conveying to you in this podcast can't possibly be as powerful as watching the film. And that's a good thing. That is film firing on all cylinders and film and music being hand in hand to deliver something astonishing. There was another thing that occurred to me while I was uh, going through the edit, and this feels like it might be considered as kind of a reductive statement, but there's a kernel of truth in there which will continue to rattle around in my head, and it's to do with the relationship between music and cinema. In this era of remakes, where studios want to back a film they know is going to be a hit because of brand recognition and an established IP, does that not make at least a segment of Hollywood, a band that only plays covers. You said earlier that uh, he abandons Rafina. He actually doesn't. I, I wouldn't call it abandoning. If that you was poor choice of words. Yeah, no, it's it's. I'm not. I'm not. I don't really want to contradict you. I just want to like set it straight for the people who haven't yet seen it. It's actually quite a, a decent move he makes. This is just it's this conversation that starts with him pretending to be her own sister that he's never met and doesn't exist. And uh, uh, she. This is when she says, I, I, "I went to this B&B with this guy. I was trying to get to London. It didn't work out for me." And she's sad, but she is hopeful eventually like she's like maybe we can sort of carry on with this and he he sort of gets up and goes nah it's all right and walks away he doesn't scream at her he's not aggressive with her he is not recriminating he's kind of shocked and hurt that she went off and did this without telling him that at least that she was going but he just walks away and there is an a dignity in being able to walk away from someone that you feel you can't change and that you're hurt by. Mm -hmm. I think in part his response there is to do with her... not necessarily lack of remorse, I don't think that's what he was necessarily looking for, but her lack of even acknowledgement that her behaviour had let him down Yeah. in some way, that he, he needed her to be there for the video and she didn't turn up, didn't tell him she wasn't going to turn up and now isn't even recognising that that's hurt him and, and left him feeling abandoned. Yeah. It's also quite notably after she continues to kind of belitter, belittle herself and him, she says something along the lines of, and now I'm just stuck with this 15-year-old schoolboy and nothing is going to work out for me and he won't stand for her dismissing him or herself in that way and so he just has to walk 
Well, he, he doesn't just storm off. He, he just says, like, I'm going to go off and uh, carry on with this music video. And she's, mm-hmm. that's when she's like, oh, can I come? And he's like, nah. And then walks off. Uh, he's, like I say, he's, he's not angry about it outwardly to her or aggressive. It's fundamental to her decision to then go away, have a long think, listen to his music, look at that authenticity measure it against the complete lack of authenticity in pretty much everyone around her, uh, but especially in Evan, uh, this man that's let her down so badly, and realize quite how much she needs to be, needs to be with this kid. There's a lot of quiet little moments when they just catch themselves smiling at each other in the film, which again, that's, it's so, what's the word, appealing it's, it ingratiates these characters upon us because they aren't over the top with their shows of affection. Uh, it's just a, a, a quiet, understated, I suppose, admiration of each other, which is really lovely to watch happening. And she also explains to him about Happy Sad at one point uh, where she uh, says that that's what love is, where you're happy and sad at the same time. And what she's describing is, of course, melancholy, that most uh, rich of emotions which we talked about on the uh, Inside Out show and my favourite and uh, that this movie is absolutely replete with and it's incisive if you can um, twin that with love itself because part of love is to accept that some things you have to give up and sometimes that's the person you love and sometimes that's things that you care about for the person you love and there's a slowly eroding clock in this film as they push towards having to give up the safety of being where they are to actually setting out on their own in a very dangerous fashion uh, to not so much even follow their dreams, just to be able to be the people that they have found the identity of. I suppose the new versions of themselves that they did not previously know were there. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, a bit of a strange connection to make because the movie hasn't actually come out yet, so I haven't seen it yet. But there's a movie that's coming out that I feel like is going to remind me a lot about this and I hope is good called, um, oh, I can't remember what the name is. The one <laughs> about Bruce Springsteen. And oh, yeah. Uh, Blinded by the Light. Blinded by the Light, yeah. Blinded by the Light, which has a similar I'm in a scrappy uh, UK, uh, British Isles British, yeah. Yeah. town. And I am inspired again. by music, and specifically Bruce Springsteen's has a lot of music that is small towns suck. I have a lot of genuine energy and heart in me, and I really need to get out of here and to do something with that. And I feel like this movie really captures that feeling, and I, I hope Blinded by the Light does as well, because I really want more films with that energy because it is so lonely growing up in a small town and feeling that even if everyone around you is feeling the same thing they uh, saved the springsteen connection for the second trailer the first trailer doesn't even mention him but after seeing that i thought right i want to be on the ground floor on this one and went and uh, got hold of born in the usa darkness on the edge of town a tunnel of love to uh, listen to just so that when i when his songs turn up in the film i can be bopping along with them Editor's note, saw Blinded by the Light last night. It's really good. Songs like Dancing in the Dark, Promised Land, and Born to Run will never be the same again to me because of this film. It's a good year for movies that are about musicians. It is. 
Yeah. Uh, and Sing Street is part of the wonderful trend that we've been giving in the last few years of fantastic movies about teenagers and teen movies. Yeah. This can go right up on the shelf with Eighth Grade and uh, so many others. Love, Simon, and... Book Smart. Book Smart. Lady Bird. Lady Bird. They're all very different movies, but they all speak to some different genuine parts of the teenage experience in ways that I think we've been missing in the movie culture for a little while. Edge of Seventeen's another one. But need you, to see that one. You reminded me I've got to see Eighth Grade. Oh, you do need to see Eighth Grade. It's the <laughs> most horrifyingly awkward and wonderfully good thing that I've seen. It was like my top one movie. Uh, was that last year? Uh, I believe so, yeah. Yes, it was my number one. Fantastic. I, I will track that down as soon as I can then. So the culmination of what Brendan said, uh, the uh, early part of the film of, of rock is a risk. He, uh, Connor says he's going to go slow at the prom and, and the, uh, the rest of the kid audience goes, ah, and start filing out. The average musician would go, ah, oh, bollocks, uh, let's do a fast one instead if you get you all back in. But Connor sticks to his guns and um, uh, sings a song called To Find You which is absolutely fantastic and so soulful and that that's the one that uh, Rafine is listening to when she you know, realises the depth of what she's uh, up against. I feel like we haven't talked about loads of other stuff in this film including Eamon, this uh, like, weird like child prodigy who can play pretty much every instrument and has access to them and is just really uh, calm and, and flip about it and uh, a little throwaway line that he gives uh, him when they're sitting on the bench just um, composing music you know, just get to London uh, you know, get us a, a record contract and then call us over, it gives a sense of future for the band rather than it just being these two escaping uh, mm-hmm. and it, it, it suggests that they aren't just running out on this, that they will bring the best parts of it that they can along with them which is of course the ideal when your young people leave that they will bring success back with them yeah when you were staring at your bedroom wall with all the ghosts beside you to change 
Bring the lightning, bring the fire, bring forth. I know I'll get my heart through. Got miles to go, but from the day I started crawling, I was on my way to find you. I was on my way to find you. The divorce that starts to uh, to happen, um, uh, you know, preys on both the parents, and uh, the, there's a recurring theme that the kids have got this lullaby of screaming matches pu- uh, pushing through the walls, mm. uh, and this miserable existence of just t- singing and listening to music just to blot this shit out, and that hurt to watch. Specifically. The fact that it's not a divorce that's starting yeah, to happen. Yeah, it's not a divorce. Because they can't get divorced. They are trapped in marriage. They, As, as um, Brendan says, the older brother, they got together when they were young and 20-something because they just wanted to have sex and getting married was the way to do that. And now they're stuck with it. And again, there's all of these rules that the adults have to follow which are making their lives miserable. And the arguments are the symptom of that misery they're not the cause of it they're the misery exploding out of them all over each other and the kids are suffering from the fallout we haven't talked enough about the band in general the Mm -hmm. actual members and what is made up there uh because it's not just connor obviously it's the other kids uh nathan did you have something you wanted to say about the other the other kids there it looked like you wanted to Mm -hmm. say something Uh, Eamon specifically, he's the kind of guy that you really want in a band in that he seems to just have endless, boundless amounts of talent and willing to do whatever anybody else wants in that sense that, like, Connor will ask something kind of insane of the band and Eamon will think about it for a second and then be immediately on board. Mm. Yes, he's not it's a doormat. Good. He's he yeah. He's 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 easily inspired. Yeah, supportive, easily inspired, and able to adapt very quickly. Mm. Yeah, it it came across a little bit like. I mean, you mentioned that there's a, a little bit of a parallel between uh, Elton John and Bernie Taupin in rocket man folks mm-hmm. we're doing rocket man at the end of the year that's sharon's favorite film of this year and it's yes. way up the top of my list Indeed. can i come <laughs> <laughs> maybe do you want to talk about music i like music <laughs> um but the but but specifically a partnership wherein one of the people involved is very definitely the head and makes the decisions and and leads i'm the front man you're the guitarist but, with mystique yeah, to a point. We also but need to talk the, about almost famous folks. But the other part, for this to be successful, the other party has to be, and this is going to sound insulting, I promise you it's not, because essentially here I'm talking about myself. 
the back end of the dog, the muscle, the where the, the, the spring and the umph has to come from once the head's decided what direction they want to go. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. The person who facilitates. Nathan, uh, the back end of the dog. Uh, <laughs> you were talking about... Um, uh, you were, I think you were talking about the rest of the band, please. There's something very appreciative about the the way that they just throw this band together, but they just kind of land on all of these incredibly talented people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we haven't, I don't think, even really mentioned uh, Ingig, the mm-hmm. um, the black member of the band that they recruit specifically because he's the black kid at school, and they think that would be cool. There is his some casual mother, racism in I, this film. I love his mother's line so much when they knock on yeah. the door and say, does he live here? And she says, no, that's four doors down. Yeah. <laughs> and they just take her word for it, too. Oh, oh hesitation. He picks up the keyboard and turns out to just be able to adapt to it really well and gives the band the that kind of futurist edge that they need um, for the style they're going for at the beginning. And that's, that's just great. It starts off with there's whoever they can basically get on board and what that ends up being is all of the slightly weird kids for whatever reason the people that don't fit into the school mm. either because the school is horrifyingly racist or because the school assumes that they're queer or because they're just different in some way shape or form the mm. very very ginger kid who <laughs> sticks out like a sore thumb just because of his hair alone they end up coming together for a reason that is entirely arbitrary to begin with, but they form this really genuine community, mm. and you get the sense that these kids really care about each other by the end of it, that they're not... That maybe, yeah, maybe they had a really crappy reason for getting the gig in the band, but the gig has friends now, and the friends are not continually crappy to him. They <laughs> are pretty good friends by the end, and there is something very genuine to forming an artistic group in high school and those are the only weird kids that you could possibly get along with mm, absolutely two of them appear to be crab and goyle <laughs> <laughs> it was also really gratifying that there was no massive flare-up of egos like you, your average band movie the lead singer and the guitarist are going to be at each other's throats because they both want things how they like them but as you say um Eamon is the back end of a dog and he's fine being that. So they actually get on surprisingly well for a band, which is it's it allows for all sorts of external conflict to facilitate the band being this source of calm and creativity. And a lot of underage smoking that they probably shouldn't oh, yeah. be doing. Yes. yes. I assume that just everybody smoked in the 80s. <laughs> Well, I would have been five at the time, but I was on uh, 20 a day. Um, but, <laughs> so it didn't stop my grandfather. Day. He no. started smoking when he was seven. Oh, I mean, Jesus. he died of lung cancer, but... <laughs> I, I, was at, I started secondary school in 1990, and most people seemed to smoke. I don't think I've ever said this on the show before, but I have a very good reason why I don't smoke, and I never really started. When I was about seven, my parents had a party, and uh, I was, I asked if I could come to the party. I said, no, it's full of grown-ups. You'll be very bored. So I was forced to stay upstairs. And at one point, uh, and it was like a summer's day, so most of the party had spilled out into the back garden. And it was a you know, big front garden, big back garden, so it was easy to sort of move around without being seen. 
and I, I snuck down, found a unattended can of uh, Holston Pills Lager, and took a great big swig of it. Only oh. to find the whole thing was absolutely chock full of lukewarm spit and cigarette ash. Oh, God. So I got the flavor of cigarettes times a thousand, but only the worst aspects of it. So I now have a retching sensation when anybody smokes anywhere near me because of this experience. Honestly, in the long term, yeah. it probably saved you a lot of money. It saved me money and, and uh, health issues. So, uh, But at the time, I did the biggest, loudest, longest spit take that I really wish had been caught on slow motion cam. I have yet to ever... No, I'm never going to smoke a cigarette. I haven't at this point. I have no desire to do so. <laughs> it just seems pointless, expensive, and unpleasant. Sorry for grossing you out, folks. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, the um, just the, the final bit I want to say about the uh, the divorce um, mm-hmm. is, or the, the lack of divorce, the separation. the separation, is that there's a lovely sequence where Brendan and Connor are sat watching their mother as she sat on the front step. Uh, she Brendan mentions that she gets home early every day uh, so she can catch a little bit of sun. Um, and that her, their father promised to take her to Spain uh, to go on holiday and to, to, to experience something of a, a, you know, a sun-kissed existence just for a little while, and he never was able to make good on that promise. And so she just steals this little bit of sunshine every time. And to their credit, while both parents row with each other behind closed doors, obviously and audibly through the walls, they don't actively take it out on the kids. There is a quiet, sad resignation to both of them, which I think is most bittersweetly encapsulated in the mother because it feels like she wanted something. She wanted more out of life that she definitely didn't get. Not a greedy want, not an unwarranted desire, but simply not wanting to surrender to a humdrum existence, which is what she's ultimately forced into. Played by Maria Doyle Kennedy, who many of you might know from Downton Abbey, where she plays Vera Bates. Uh, and she was in The Commitments. That's where I recognised her from. One of the backing singers who I wish they'd fleshed out. And Connor has to say goodbye to both his parents at the end of the film. And the father's in the corner of the room in a, uh, a sleeping bag. And he never wakes his parents up. He just has to say it silently. And he's mainly saying it to his mother. There's, there's a a sweet kind of affection there from him, which uh, feels like he's actually having to leave something very significant behind. The familial relationships in this movie are as strong as any of the other relationships. They're beautifully portrayed and genuinely touching. And I, I do feel a surprising amount of connection to the sister who is probably the least important and least spoken character in the film but she never even gets a goodbye no but i'm also the middle daughter in a family with two brothers an older one and a younger one Hmm. so i can totally understand where she was coming from throughout this whole thing and how she was relating to them in the few scenes like there's a scene where the parents are arguing and all three of them are hiding away in brendan's bedroom and they finally get her up to dance and there's this very sweet I, I could see my brothers doing that. And I luckily had fabulous parents, so we didn't have that kind of 
we have to survive together mentality that a lot of siblings end up having. But I've seen families that operate that way. I know people very closely who have those relationships with their siblings, and it feels very true in this movie. Uh, Nathan has brothers, too, and might have thoughts on the brother portrayals, because I'm not a boy, and I don't know what being a brother is like. <laughs> yes, I have several brothers. Uh, I have four brothers, actually. Um, but I, I do... I, I connect a lot with the relationship between Connor and Brendan in this movie, uh, because, like Connor, I, I grew up very much idolizing my oldest brother, uh, Josh, and there's a particular scene in this movie where Brendan sits Connor down and explains to him how important it was that Connor came along and the things that Brendan had to go through to basically pave the way for Connor to live a life that wasn't as essentially that wasn't as shitty as his was he says he hacked through the jungle with a machete and Connor's mm-hmm. been following after him and uh, I, I have excellent parents um, I, I didn't go through any kind of abuse the way that um, it, that physical abuse in this movie with Connor and Brendan but like I didn't go through a lot of the same experiences here uh, as portrayed in the movie but there is uh, there has been this uh, slowly building kind of uh, moral and ideological divide between myself and my parents because I grew up in a very evangelical household. And over the years, I have uh, drifted from that upbringing in a way that makes it somewhat difficult when I am around my parents to talk about certain things and to share certain experiences that I have in a way that won't either hurt them or cause some kind of conflict. And my brother Josh went through a lot of that conflict before I did. He he sort of opened the way for me to get to do certain things and not have my parents be as judgmental or be as kind of openly... Uh, opposing those sorts of things and that is an element of this movie that I really appreciate is how strongly it gets across the importance that it can be having somebody on your side I also very much appreciate Josh because I cannot imagine what it would have been like for Nathan to take me home to his family if Josh had not first taken home and married the girl that he is married to because oh boy do I not fit into an evangelical system (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Neither does Sarah, who is Josh's wife, who is finishing her PhD in history, talking about the sex work history in Saskatchewan, who definitely paved the way for me as a sister-in-law. Awesome. She sounds fab. (laughs) Oh, she's wonderful. I should should plug her Twitter if I could remember it. I think there is there is an element of that in a an older sibling relationship, and I, although I don't have brothers, I have one sister who is a, a couple of years younger than me, and I think to a much lesser degree, I took a few hits so that she wouldn't have to, and 
Um, certainly, I remember a particular conversation I was having with my mum when uh, my sister was probably around about 15 and I was about 17 and they just had a blazing row and my mum was really, really upset about it and I was just like, I was exactly the same when I was her age. It's it's just, it'll pass, just chill and got mum to calm down and that kind of diffused the situation a little bit. So I think that's that's what older siblings do. Uh, the actual film is dedicated to brothers everywhere. It's uh, a really sweet note. The uh, Brendan's the one that they uh, ask to drive them to their grandfather's boat, which is this tiny little, it's barely a dinghy uh, that they keep uh, at uh, moored at a nearby port. They foreshadow it neatly at the beginning with uh, a scene where they show the ferry going across the sea to uh, England and uh, more and more people leaving Ireland. So you've got that situation and it uh, works in juxtaposition with the uh, sad, difficult domestic situation they're then faced with. So they can kind of sneak it past you there so that you've got that seed planted. Later on, you see the little boat and he takes her out to an island and then they discuss roughly how close England is whereby you can actually just about see it on the horizon so that when it actually happens it's not out of nowhere and Brendan thinks for a moment and then is wonderfully immediately supportive even though he uh, he even says you're probably going to die it's cut to this uh, Adam Levine song Go Now which is the voice of Brendan effectively in this scene it's the song lyrics that he was writing down in hands to Connor before he leaves the dock. Yeah. He's effectively written them a song to take with them. He then cheers as they ride off into the storm, you know, into the unknown. And it's a bit hairy and they're getting pelted with water. And it's like they actually are in, in danger out here. And then the ferry blasts in front of them in the middle of the storm. And they, uh, rather than this being an obstacle, they then follow it and travel in the jet stream, which is all that Connor's done. So he is being shown the way. This is symbolic of Brendan. And watching it the second and third time started to really get to me, and I couldn't work out why. And I realized uh, just before we started this that I never had a brother and I was never able to be a brother to my sister in that way. We were treated very differently. It was one of those, the the daughter can do no wrong, the son's a problem situation. She didn't particularly need my help and that's never changed between us. So I was never able to support anyone like that and I never had a older male figure who could deflect me from the shit of a toxic father figure I didn't have that and I wasn't able to be that and it made me happy sad melancholy partly because um, in the same way that I am melancholy about my own father's insufficiency that I can be a better father to my daughter uh I can also give her some aspects that an older brother could, can feasibly give by having that slightly more young at heart outlook rather than just being the authority figure, someone who can actually relate to her. So, yeah, it, it made me sad that I don't have an older brother, and I never will. 
But the soul of the movie resonates with this fraternal energy. lighter note literally every song in this movie is a banger on some level or another <laughs> Correct. Uh, and we actually love this movie so much one of the songs that i'm uh i have sent off to my older brother who is a musician to possibly play as we walk down the aisle is up nice uh the bedroom 
uh, version, Pedro specifically the, the slower, more instrumental version, and uh, I think I think he'll be able to play that beautifully. And I'm going to have a hard time not crying the next time I'm home with my brothers and they're playing music. This is Coco. It is very <laughs> hard to go back to a musical family after you watch this and not get really emotional. <laughs> this is one of a handful of movies that I personally, whenever I watch it, it just gives me this overwhelming urge to create things, to, to start pouring myself into something. And that is something I really appreciate about it. Just time to thank our $15 sponsors on Patreon for this month. Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, John Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gusega, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Essman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dachler, Lorraine Chisholm, and a special big thank you to Austin Wilden, who commissioned this episode. We hope you like it. Go in her She lights me So where can people find you online and where can they find your work? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Bert Nerdtram. My Twitter is at Kenzie Phoenix. Uh, me and Nathan both do the uh, Rainbow Connection podcast, which is at uh, Muppets Pod on Twitter. And we're working on, but have yet to actually release the episodes. We have like six recorded, but haven't actually finished editing or releasing any. But when you find when they're out, it's going to be video game the movie the podcast where we're going over every video game movie ever made uh and that's at vgtm podcast right i think it's just vgtm pod okay one of the two (laughs) video game the movie the podcast you'll be able to find it (laughs) (laughs) next week we have a surprising film that we think you're gonna like our direction on that was sing street and i've been alex shaw i've been sharon shaw and school's School's out. out Drive it like you stole it.
Drive it like you stole it. Roll